0: Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Wounded Blue Hour here on the America Out Loud Network. I am your host, Randy Sutton, a 34 year law enforcement veteran, the author of A Cop's Life, several other books, and the soon to be released, Rescuing 911 The Fight for America's Safety. You can Grab a copy of that at rescuing911.org. I'm also the founder of the Wounded Blue, the national assistance and support organization for injured and disabled law enforcement officers. And on this show, we talk about all things related to the mental, physical, and spiritual well-being of America's law enforcement community. So before I bring in my guest who is waiting for us, Um, I'm going to do what I call our reality check, and that reality check talks about the officers who have given their lives in the line of duty just since our last show, which was last week. And unfortunately, I have four names to read this week. The first is um, Deputy Sheriff uh, Greg McGowan of the Blount County Sheriff's Office in Tennessee. Deputy Sheriff McGowan was shot and killed while initiating a traffic stop on Severville Road in Maryville, Tennessee. Around 9 p.m., Deputy McGowan and his partner pulled over a vehicle for erratic driving. The driver would not cooperate and shot Deputy McGowan and the other deputy in the leg. She returned fire, but the subject fled on foot. Deputy McGowan was taken to Blount Memorial Hospital where he succumbed to his wounds. The other deputy was treated at the hospital and released. The subject, who is a convicted felon, has not yet been apprehended. The felon's brother and girlfriend have been arrested for aiding the defendant after the commission of the homicide. Deputy McGowan has served the Blount County Sheriff's Office for four years. He is survived by two children, a granddaughter, parents, and a fiancé. Blount County Sheriffs, Greg McGowan, end of watch, Thursday, February 8th, 2024. The next is Deputy Sheriff Ronald Bates, Harris County Sheriff's Office in Texas. Deputy Sheriff Ronald Bates was killed in a vehicle crash while en route to the Harris County Jail at 10 p.m. After finishing an overtime assignment, Deputy Bates was traveling on Travis Street, when he lost control of his vehicle and struck a tree near Richmond Avenue in Houston. He was transported to the Taub Hospital, where he succumbed to his injuries. Deputy Bates has served with Harris County Sheriff's Office for 31 years. He is survived by his wife and two children. Deputy Sheriff Ronald Bates, Harris County Sheriff's Office, Texas. End of watch, Saturday, February 10th, 2024. The next... Deputy Sheriff Timothy Tavares Rivers, Crawford County Sheriff's Office in Georgia. Deputy Sheriff Timothy Rivers was killed in a vehicle crash on Marshall Mill Road in Lizella. At 10.09 p.m., Deputy Rivers was responding to an officer assistance call traveling southbound when his patrol car crossed the center line. When he attempted to correct his path, he hit another vehicle. He was transported to Medical Center where he succumbed to his injuries. Deputy Rivers has served the Crawford County Sheriff's Office for two years. He is survived by his two children and fiance. Deputy Sheriff Timothy Tavares Rivers, Crawford County Sheriff's Office, Georgia. End of Watch, Tuesday, February 6, 2024. And the fourth officer this week to give his life in the line of duty is Patrol Officer Jonah Hernandez. Las Cruces, New Mexico Police Department. Patrol officer Jonah Hernandez was stabbed to death while responding to a trespassing call on South Valley Drive in Las Cruces. A witness to the stabbing shot the suspect and then used Officer Hernandez radio for, uh, to request help. Officer Hernandez transported to Mountain View Regional where he died from his wounds. Officer Hernandez had served with the Las Cruces police For just two years survived by his wife and two sons patrol officer jonah hernandez las cruces police department new mexico end of watch sunday february 11th 2024 all of these officers gave their lives in the line of duty protecting and serving their communities but the attacks on law enforcement don't end with the deaths of these four brave officers no Last month, in the month of January, 32 officers were shot in the line of duty and uh, more were, were uh, assaulted. And once again, the number of police officers being assaulted, a uh, story came out in New York. The dramatic rise in officers being physically assaulted uh, is, uh, is off the, off the charts. This is symptomatic of what is happening across America. The job is not getting less dangerous, it's getting more dangerous, both physically, emotionally, and psychologically. So let's support our law enforcement officers across America. Let me uh, bring in our guest, very interesting guy. John Becker is our guest. Uh, He founded a company called Aardvark when he was just 17 years old. I want to hear more about that, John. The company started out as a climbing equipment business, often selling gear to SWAT teams and operators. After attending law school and working in police litigation, John uh, realized that the best way he could serve tactical operators was by producing and providing high-quality gear and products that would enhance operator safety on the job. After Aardvark's expansion and success, John founded Project T7, a provider of purpose-built, scalable, and configurable tactical platforms. I don't even know what the hell that means, John. Throughout this decades-long journey, John has learned invaluable lessons about the lives and work of law enforcement and tactical operators, leading him to a deep understanding of the principles and core values behind highly effective teams. After keynoting for many years on the leadership of elite units and what he terms, quote, Culture centric, unquote leadership. Becker is putting those lessons into the debrief, a nonprofit podcast that serves the wider public. Welcome to the show, John Becker.
1: Randy, thank you so much for having me today. All
0: right, so got a couple things here on your background. First of all, yep, Aardvark. You started this company when you were seventeen.
1: Yeah, 17 years old, I, uh, I left high school, went to college. I sat next to a girl who worked for a rock climbing wholesaler. And uh, she said, we should start a mail order business selling this device that they were bringing in. And uh, so we did. And she flaked right away because she had a job and you know was going to school. Uh, I continued to do it, started dealing with SWAT teams and spec ops units that were buying ropes and harnesses and carabiners. And I grew up in a, a military family. My dad was a Navy captain, my brother's a special operator and um you know it just it i I liked the law enforcement market Uh, i felt like i needed to know the gear better than the end user did so i spent a bunch of time testing and training and learning how gear worked which uh kind of gave me a business model that you know i now 38 years later realize was a pretty good business model but at the time uh, i just didn't want to be a sales guy and i wanted to be a value and uh you know it it just it took off from there
0: that's an amazing story i mean the fact that you were an entrepreneur at 17, and then you recognized a specific niche that you want to get involved in that literally set the course of your life on a much different path than you probably imagined.
1: Oh yeah, no, I mean, I set out to be a marine biologist. Um, that didn't last very long, but uh, no, it's it, um, it's it's easy to fall in love with my job. Like every day I'm interacting with people you know you talked about at the top of the show like I, I literally everyday deal with people who are willing to place themselves in harm's way for people they don't even know right that, that are willing to put themselves into just ridiculously dangerous situations um you know to protect people who they will probably in some cases never even meet and uh it, it's very easy to to love that group and as soon as i started dealing with tactical units um, i had really found a home culturally it was it was people that i i liked i respected and I was lucky because when I started the business, some of the first contacts I made just happened to be the founders of SWAT. It was it was the guys, you know, the Ron McCarthys and Mike Hillmans and John Coleman's and Sid Hale and uh, the guys who were were writing all the articles that were teaching nationwide uh, were the guys that brought me up. And so I had this amazing stable of of just unbelievable leaders and and thought leaders in the industry, who who took the time for some reason to invest in me and, and gave me an understanding. I mean, the number, my rule was I would never turn down three, tra- free training. So by the time I was 25 and getting out of law school, I had 3000 hours of special tactics training. Wow. And as it just so happened, yeah, it was crazy. I had more training than any, of my, than any of my clients did. I didn't have the operational experience, obviously, but I had the, I had the training and understood how they operated and had gone on enough ops with teams that I really kind of understood my end user. And, and that that drove a thought process and a culture for the organization that now retrospectively, you know, when I look back at why was the business successful, I realized that I was emotionally compromised from the beginning. Um, I, I cared more about my end user than I did business. And that's still true today. Uh, the number of times I talk myself out of business on products that aren't right for people um, is, is still really high. It, it, so it's it's... It started off as a as a hobby and ended up being a a lifetime, literally of of you know constant happiness.
0: Well, that's 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 a great background. That's a great story. But so your dad was a um, a naval captain.
1: Yeah, my dad was navy captain. Uh, my brothers a green beret, so I was around it. Um, I wasn't, you know, I mean, I started it really young, and and by then my brother had moved out and was in the Marine Corps, and then eventually the Army, um, but i had been around guns and law enforcement and military and so it wasn't scary to me uh, it wasn't you know it was it was familiar and as i started dealing with teams um i identified and understood the culture really well like it, it the, the culture of the teams we deal with to this day still resonates and makes sense to me so when i went to law school um i, I spent two years working lapd police litigation and I jokingly say I'm tactical Forrest Gump because I've been in the right place at the right time repeatedly, and not because of brilliance. Um, I just happened to get to LAPD police litigation right as the Rodney King case was kicking off.
0: So I, well, I was fortunate that's, enough to that's work trial on. by fire.
1: Oh yeah, hundred percent, L- literally yeah, trial was, by fire. My fire. And it was. It was the the ACLU and and uh, Stephen Yagman and Cook and Mann, and all of the lawyers that were making law enforcement litigation a, a, a livelihood were in, at the, you know, starting to come into the height of their powers at that point. So I, I worked on a lot of cases. I, I was around a lot of cases um, that just gave me kind of an additional understanding. And then when I got out of law school, I was kind of at that fork where you go get a job and I didn't know any happy lawyers. Uh, i i worked with a firm in west la called carpenter and Rothins doing kind of consulting and working on some of their cases and i just came to the realization that i didn't really like dealing with lawyers all day they don't tell you that when you go into law school that when you get out everybody you deal with is a lawyer um but uh you know in the business had just started doing military integration especially large-scale military integration It was when somalia happened and we were just kind of at a point that I sat down with my wife and I'm like, hey, I know we just spent every dime we have and put ourselves in debt, but I have a better idea. <laughs> and uh, and she was dumb enough to go along. So here we are.
0: So you you don't actually practice law?
1: Still maintain my license. Could always go back to being a lawyer. That's my contingency plan. That's your, that's your fallback no, I, plan? That's my fallback plan is, is, <laughs> is being a lawyer. Uh, and it's, it's a long fall, let's be honest. Uh, but no, I, I, I maintain my license. I still stay current on law, but it's not it's not my job now is is exclusively Ardvark and and the debrief and, and law enforcement and military integration stuff that we're doing and, and Project Seven, which is an armor company. Um so that that keeps me more than busy.
0: Okay, let's let's talk about I mean it's highly unusual for someone who has never actually been a sworn officer to embrace the community in the manner in which you do. I mean, you yeah. live, breathe and eat um, you know, a uh, uh what is essentially um a li- a, a lifestyle. And yeah. and you do so because you are committed to the men and women of the law enforcement military community, but it's very interesting that you would adopt that um and 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 literally, mold your life around a commitment to that um, as never having actually served.
1: I think you know it, it's it, obviously you know you get older. We're both older guys. You look back and you go, "How did I hey, end hey, up talk, here?"
0: Talk, talk talk for yourself, okay?
1: Okay, fine. You're an <laughs> older guy. I'm a younger guy. Uh, <laughs> no, I mean you. You look back and you go, "How did this happen?" And I, I think that obviously the guys that initially I engaged with were amazing people, right? I mean, and th- th- those guys, like you look at the, my initial mentors in, in tactical law enforcement and you know, we've, we've unfortunately buried three of them in the last 18 months, but, mm. um, th- they were amazing men. Like they were amazing men. And, and, you know, Sid Hale being an example is, is one of my closest friends for for the majority of my life. Um, it is hard not to fall in love with people that have the moral code that these guys did, and and have the values that they do, and you know it, it's just a community that made sense to me. And I realized really early on that, you know, my, the teams that I work with have a job, right? Their job is tactical law enforcement. Gear is an entirely different skill set. It's it's a different specialty. And I realized pretty quickly that I could add a lot of value to these teams because I could understand the gear better than they would ever understand it. Cause it, it was my job. Right. And I had this unique access to teams literally all over the world, which gave me a a database of what was working, what wasn't working, what gear was effective, what gear wasn't effective and gave me the ability to connect teams together that would never meet, that would never interact. And, and that's really the part of it that, that I enjoy. Um, you know, it's, it's coming full circle, you realize that that there isn't anyone that is protecting law enforcement, right? That's that's right. not something that we as a society do. We, we assume that you're going to protect us and then, you know, just kind of entrust that you're gonna be okay. And I, I think we've learned over the last 20 years that, that that's not true. And um, I saw an opportunity to to make a difference and, and it's, you know, I, I always say if you have the ability to do something, you have the responsibility to do it. And, and I, I saw myself as having the responsibility of protecting the teams I was working with. And, and now this many years later, I still look at it that way. I'm, I'm still very active with the teams that we work with. I'm still very active with kind of national level asset teams, especially um, all over the world. And it's, it is an amazing opportunity to help these guys to be safer.
0: Right, you used a phrase that I'm going to circle back on, and I, it's a phrase that I, uh, it's not used enough, it's not talked about enough. You use the word moral code, and when you talk about that phrase, moral code, and how deeply ingrained it is in the protectors, when I say the protectors, I mean the law enforcement community, the military Community the tactical operators it, it it is it is just that it is a code and it's for I mean it harkens back to you know um, what we romanticize as the the Knights errant of uh, of your where um, Where there was a code the code of honor code of of justice and and it's something that is not talked about enough in our society um, I, and I believe that that's what sets these men and women apart from society in general is that moral code and how important that is to um, uh, with, within that community. And, you know, you, you ask anybody who, who, who gets, gets uh, the opportunity to, to even test for the job of law enforcement, right? What's the, what's the first question that they ask in an oral board, right? Why do you want to be a cop? And that part, that question, that moral code question is probably the, the, the backbone of, of that, of, of the entire service. I want to be a cop because I want to help others. And that's what the moral code is all about. So the question I have to you is, do you see in your world, um, a still, a, a, even as our values have diminished as a, as a nation, and we've seen a lot of degeneration. Um, do you still believe that the the, the moral code is uh, is as strong as it once was?
1: One hundred percent. I I really do. I think certainly, you know, we we are surrounded by examples of of that not being the case, and our media has exploited our evolutionary biology, right? We we are programmed to like negative information. It, it, it gives us a little dopamine hit because realistically from a survival standpoint, negative information is more valuable than positive information. If I tell you, hey, Randy, the tree down there has really good oranges, that may help you to stay alive a little bit. If I tell you the bottom of that tree has a rattlesnake that'll kill you, that will help you stay alive. So we're hardwired evolutionarily towards negative information and the media, you know, worldwide has figured that out. And that's, and, and we've trained them, right? This is not like the, the evil media set out to feed us bad information. We've trained them because what we watch is really negative stuff. And if you, if you watch the news, which, which I don't generally anymore, um, you know, tend to read my news, um, cause it tends to be more concise. But if you watch the news, what they're telling us is that the world's out to get us. And there's a lot of evil people and, and I don't believe that because I'm surrounded by good people every day. Um, there are a lot of good people in the world. Certainly there there are wolves hunting the flock. I, I make no, you know, no illusion that that there are not wolves hunting the flock, but there are a lot of sheep. Don't? There are a lot of people who are willing to put themselves in harm's way to protect us. And and I think it's easy to lose that. I think it's it's very easy to see ourselves in a world where everybody's evil and out to get us. And when we do, I think we, we begin to really focus on a negative world. It's like you know, I told my kids one time, you can view the world as evil and, and sometimes be pleasantly surprised, or you can view the world as good and sometimes be negatively surprised. <laughs> the, the difference between those two views is that if you view the world as evil, you live in an evil world. And, and, you know, the nice thing with what I do is every day I interact with, with legitimate heroes who are willing to do the right thing. And so it, it, I do think a moral code matters. It is certainly a thing. Uh, in the units I deal with, it is always a thing. Uh, you know, I asked my daughter. My daughter's 18. I asked her one day we were driving. I said, if I were hit by a bus tomorrow, who is a good man in your life that you could turn to? When she got to about fifteen people, she's like, "Are you done yet, or do you want me to keep reading?" <laughs> and, and if if that's the world I live in, that's a pretty good world. And, yeah. and I do think that there are a lot of people that really believe in those things. And and I, I don't think we can allow the the darkness to creep into our brains because if it does, then then we live in an evil world. And I would much rather live in the the world with the kind of people that I do.
0: You know, it's uh, I think that when I when I look back on my career choice, spending. 34 years as a police officer and I had, I had the opportunity to go to other professions and, and make a lot more money than, than I did did as a police officer. But I, I remember very distinctly that the choice was very, very easy for me to say, you know what? I enjoy doing what I do for several different reasons. One is because it makes me feel like I'm valuable to, to, to my, to my country and to my community. But secondly, it, it, it was the honor of working among other people who embraced an ideology that I found admirable. And that ideology yeah. was, was one of, 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 um, silent heroism. You know, you know, as well as I do that when you make that conscious decision to put that uniform on, whether that uniform is green or blue. Uh, you are you are acknowledging that that danger is going to be literally right around the corner at any moment. And I, while I know from talking with many people over my career, there's a lot of folks that say, mm, "Why on earth would you do that?" And yet, when you are hardwired to lead a life of service, that's who you are. So. Where I want to go with this, we have to take a hard break in just about a minute. But when we come back, I want to talk about what you have seen as basically the, this evolution, not a healthy evolution, of the anti-law enforcement dogma that has been thrust upon you know, the, the, the people of, of this country and especially the law enforcement community. And I want to talk about how that affects them, not just physically, but emotionally and psychologically. So let's take a quick break. We'll come back and we'll get, we'll get deep.
1: Who's got time for a nasal invasion messing up your lifestyle? crush those nasties before they become a problem. For a limited time, when you add the new CofixRx throat spray to your order with the coupon code OUTLOUD, you'll receive 20% off the entire purchase. Go to americaoutloud.shop, that's americaoutloud.shop, and use coupon code OUTLOUD. Use CofixRx because it works.
0: To get heart healthy, go to HealthyCell.com and use code OUTLOUD for 25% off your first order. HealthyCell.com, code OUTLOUD for 25% off. Millions of Americans are needlessly suffering from the long-haul effects of the toxic spike protein. Dr. Peter McCullough and his team at The Wellness Company designed their spike support formula to counteract harmful spike protein from COVID-19 and vaccines so you can feel your best. Go to outloudcare.com today and use code OUTLOUD for 25% off your first order.
1: Many voices, one freedom, united in
0: the First Amendment. Our goal is to herald the voice of genuine liberty at americaoutloud.news, a place where you'll find the naked truth expressed with a patriotic heart. Now is our time, my fellow Americans. America Out Loud Talk Radio. Liberty
1: and justice for all.
0: One Nation Coffee, One Nation Coffee, patriotic, uh, veteran owned, uh, very, very good coffee. I actually went down and visited their roasting facility and met with the folks down there uh, john and his crew and they are amazing people the coffee is delicious you order it online they bring it right to your house you can get ground coffee you can get beans i like to grind my own they've got uh, also got these uh you know the the containers that you put in your kerrig or whatever that thing is called so um one nation coffee go to one order your coffee and uh, you'll get great coffee and you'll be supporting uh, a patriotic company that supports the wounded blue. So uh, go to onenationcoffee.com. As you know, on this show, we talk about everything involving the mental, spiritual, and physical well-being of law enforcement. Well, part of that is about keeping ourselves and our families safe. And I want to tell you about a very unique company called OfficerPrivacy.com. Now, OfficerPrivacy.com plays a, a really interesting role in protecting the private information of law enforcement officers. When I say that, what do I mean? Okay, this, it was pointed out to me um, by Pete James, the owner of the company who's a retired uh, police officer, just how much information is available on the internet about me personally, including where I live, my spending habits, there's all kinds of things out there. I don't want people knowing about me. I, I value my safety, I value my privacy. So what officer privacy um, does, is it actually goes onto all these searchable sites and removes, scrubs, personal information about you. Now, for a law enforcement officer, that's really, really critical stuff, both for our personal selves, our families, those we love. Um, This is, I think, pretty essential stuff. Now, they make it, it's not expensive to do. Uh, They only use uh current and former law enforcement to actually go in and and have access to your information Uh, so it's a uh it's really unique company it's something i recommend they they took like more than 35 references to my private information out of the off the internet and that was amazing to me so go to officerprivacy.com and uh, and check them out so let's get back to um let's get back to my my guest uh, john john um i want to talk about your podcast uh, the debrief when did you start this podcast and what was the what was the impetus to begin it
1: so it was about uh almost two years ago and what what happened was one of our friends died one of our friends got als and died Guy named Tim Anderson, and Tim was a wealth of information. Tim was a retired Marine colonel. He had been a sergeant at LAPD. He had worked all kinds of assignments. He was a a fusion thinker. He could combine law enforcement and military doctrine together in a way that, you know, a few others have done. And we were standing at Sid's funeral or at uh, Tim's funeral with with several friends. And I said, "Do you guys realize what we lost today? Do you realize how much information just disappeared? Like we will never regain." everything tim learned and tim didn't write a book and he we didn't record any of his classes and you know there's no there is no written history of of tactical law enforcement there's no history of the evolution of this whole thing and we really need to find somebody to make a documentary on this or to to write this stuff down um because we're losing it all and and if we allow this information to disappear we're going to make the same mistakes over and over again and uh, one of my mentors at the time said, hey, i to me and said, well, if you want to do that, you're going to have to do it because we're not going to talk to anybody because we don't trust the media and we can't trust the media. I said, no, I understand that. And, and it kind of resonated and I went back and had conversations with some of the other guys that I, I work with and whose opinions I value. And ultimately they said, look, if you want to do this, you're going to have to do it yourself because it's got to be somebody we can talk to that we know is going to, you know, edit the information correctly and not take things out of context and... Um, so over the next few months, that kind of baked into an idea to do this podcast. And we've been doing debriefs for years. Like Ardvark has, for 25 years, done what we call our evening lecture series where if a team has a big operation, something happens, uh, we'll bring them in and you know pull together an audience of, of other teams, exclude the media, have private conversations that allow for a full and accurate debrief of an, of an event. And so it it was something we were already doing and it made sense. And so we started down that path and, uh, you know, here we are 35 or 36 episodes later in our third season. And it has really given us the ability to tell stories that, that no one would ever hear in a way that we can, you know, all of these conversations can be had in a way that somebody who understands, understands, and somebody that's just, passing by or a member of the public doesn't really understand what's happening in the conversation. And so that's really what the show does is we, we talk to leaders, we talk to, you know, experts that, that help with law enforcement leadership or will help with law enforcement leadership. And then we do a, a series of, of shows on, on actual events, you know, walking through debriefing an event, going through lessons learned. And, and the entire purpose of the podcast is, you know, aligns perfectly with my life's mission, which is just to protect operators. And, and send guys home with more knowledge than they walked in with.
0: So the the term debrief is for the law, everyone in law enforcement, military understands that term. It's ingrained in us. But for the general public, very often they don't really know what a debrief is. So I want to explain that to the, uh, you know, what and the importance of debriefing uh, in the context that we're talking about. If you would go ahead and explain what a debrief actually yeah.
1: is. One hundred percent. So, so a debrief is an after-action review. It's it's after an event, sitting down with everybody that's involved in that event, and one by one going through the event, looking at what what went right, what went wrong, um, trying to to provide a common understanding. Uh, and the idea of it is the same as as any business quality program, right? It's trying to improve. The operational effectiveness of the team, trying to improve the safety of the team, and trying to you know constantly make small iterative changes to make the unit more effective, and and done correctly, a debrief is a very brutally honest thing. Uh, it is it is raw and open, and everybody speaks their mind, and nobody gets their feelings hurt. And, and the idea behind debriefing is we're going to get better, we're going to be safer. And so that's the culture that kind of in, in you know, I, I grew up in was this very raw debrief. You know, when, when you went to a debrief, it was not a pretty process. Like it was a private process most of the time. And I was fortunate enough to sit in on quite a few. But it was a, you know, the initial debrief was we're going to sit down and talk about what, right, what went right and what went wrong. And, and we're going to make ourselves better. And then the public facing version of that. And when I say public, I mean, you know, in, in our world, the, the the version of that that is presented to other teams. When I started was also the same thing. It was a very like, hey, we screwed this up. Here's the stuff we did wrong, don't do this. You know, I always, the, the story I always use is the first guy that found a rattlesnake got bit by the rattlesnake. If he didn't tell anybody, the next guy that found a rattlesnake got bit by a rattlesnake. And the point of a debrief is to say, hey, I found this thing, it's long, it's skinny, it's got a rattle on its tail, don't touch it. That's a, great, that's, a great over, that's
0: a great analogy. That's a great it, analogy.
1: Yeah, it, it it to me it just kind of explains it, right? And 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 what has happened between law enforcement litigation and media coverage is the culture of a debrief has shifted over the last twenty years, and and we've we've kind of created this this moment in time where we're not we're we're discouraging law enforcement from looking at itself honestly, because if you admit you made a mistake, then we're going to hammer you for it. And if you do subsequent, you know, what what in law is called subsequent remedial measures, you look and go, hey, this didn't work, we're going to change something, then now we're going to use that as the basis for litigation. And and what we've unintentionally done is created a culture in law enforcement that is preventing them from developing. It's preventing our teams, preventing our agencies from improving because we're forcing them into a corner where they can't really honestly look at themselves and so part of the culture of the debrief is like, let's really honestly look at these operations and let's try to share information, which we can do very discreetly, right? Like there, there are a lot of things that you, you and I could have a conversation on on air about a variety of things that that only cops would listen to and go, yeah, okay, I understand. And, and nobody else would. They would, everybody else would be like looney tunes when you were a kid like all the all the dirty jokes went over your head <laughs> um you know and, and so that's a lot of what we're trying to do and and i'm not it's not a gotcha podcast it is we sit down we have a conversation we edit it before an episode of the debrief goes to air our guests listen to it or in this case you know now their third season we're, we're back to video you're watching it and, and if there's something that they're like i really don't like the way that sounded or we're concerned about or that was inaccurate, then we're going to remove it or edit around it. Because my goal is that a team who's in wet overshoe Wisconsin and, and maybe doesn't have access to LAPD can watch 90 minutes or two hours with Lee McMillian, who's the current commander of LAPD SWAT and, and hear how LAPD SWAT thinks, hear how they make decisions and use that to inform the way their team operates. And and the same is true internationally. You know, we've interviewed guys from BRI in Paris and Delta Norge in Norway. And uh, I'm interviewing a guy this week from from uh, Belgium. And, and it's like, you you just start to get this broad sampling of, of views of the world, of the way teams operate, of the kinds of operations they have. And all of those things get stuck away in your brain. And then when you're forced into a situation where you have to make a critical decision, you have everybody else's collective knowledge to draw on, right? That's, that is why human beings evolved, right? The difference between one of the differences between humans and chimps is we can publish stuff. Somebody can do something stupid in Norway and Randy can see it in the U S and go, Oh, I'm not going to do that. And and so that's really the culture is like, let's take the best and brightest that the industry has and expose them to the broadest audience we can and try to share information on the hopes that at some point, somewhere, you know, on a a dark street in Minnesota, somewhere, somebody doesn't make a decision that that ends their life or gets them hurt.
0: I want to go into a different type of debrief now. Um, Yeah. And that is and this directly affects the mental and emotional well-being of our law enforcement officers. And that is a debrief from a critical incident um, or a traumatic incident that uh, that that uh, someone has been exposed to. You know, we have we uh, we're slow to learn in law enforcement. We're 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 behind the learning curve very, very often. But one thing that I am that I'm. encouraged by is that there is there is a a growing understanding that that trauma um, can be mitigated and one of the ways to mitigate it is through the debrief let's talk about how effective that is when you're talking about debriefing from critical incidents
1: So this is, this is a topic that I'm very passionate about. You know, I, am interacting with guys that have been in absolutely traumatic events all the time, whether it's the teams we work with or, or the, the guests that I have on the show, I am constantly surrounded by people who have been through real trauma and, and you can see that those guys take different paths. Some of those guys, um, you know, medicate themselves with bourbon and, and some of them get counseling and, and the event doesn't define them. I've had friends who have killed themselves. I've had friends who have drank themselves to death. Um, and it is so critical that after a traumatic event, we are taking the time to psychologically and emotionally debrief everybody involved and give them the support and, and counseling and help that they need. Because the, the things that law enforcement and military are exposed to is not normal. It is not. This is not normal for human beings. It is not normal for you to work in, you know, in Chicago and and you know every Friday and Saturday night see a teenager killed. Um, that that is not a normal state of existence for us. And we've created so much this bravado culture around law enforcement and military that we're killing cops. You know, you look at the suicide rate in law enforcement. You look at the suicide rate in special operators and military special operators, and it's staggering and and it's because we're damaging people and we're not healing it and and the culture around it is oh it's just you know it's a sign of weakness and and you know I've had several conversations with people where where they said like look if you if you tore the cartilage in your knee you'd go see an orthopedist and you'd get it fixed every traumatic event you go through is damaging your brain right it, it is harming your well-being and yet for so long, we've had this culture of, yeah, just, you know, just kind of bourbon your way through it and everything will be okay. And and what I'm seeing now is that is changing. Like you, you still look at the suicide rates and and it's not changing fast enough, but it is changing. We're getting away from this mindset of, you know, yeah, just gut through it, you'll be fine. And, and we're starting to realize that like the trauma that we're putting into people has to be dealt with we have got to come up with an outlet we've you know we've got to stop deploying our special operations forces around the world you know i I was with a guy yesterday from delta who spent 14 separate deployments in afghanistan iraq and all over central and south america 14 deployments from three to six months right so this guy spent six years at war seven years at war that's not something you're going to just wash away you're not going to bourbon it away right um and and so i think we've got to change the culture and i do think i think we're moving in the right direction i think shows like yours are are giving people an opportunity to look at the problem differently but but i'll tell you man the the people that i know that have gone through the process right have really legitimately leaned into therapy have done emdr have done you know other therapeutic modalities come out of the back of the event and they're okay right they've gotten if nothing else it becomes a memory it stops being something that is trigger, triggering them physiologically, keeping them up at night, you know, giving them startle reflex, um, you know, making them suicidal, making them depressed, and and it becomes something that they went through. And recently, I, I interviewed a, a doctor who was talking about post-traumatic growth versus post-traumatic stress. And they said, you know, when you exercise, it's stress. When you lift weights, you're stressing the muscles. And if you give if you give the arm, you know, let's say doing bicep curls. If you give the arm time to heal, it gets stronger. If you keep re-injuring it, it never gets stronger. And so much of what we've done in the past has been post-traumatic stress. It's been continuing to lift heavy weights with these guys, continuing to put them in difficult situations, not giving them a chance to recover. And so they don't, they don't heal. But this, this concept of post-traumatic growth, I love because I've seen it. I've seen it firsthand with guys I've interviewed where they've been through terrible traumas horrific stuff and they come out of it and they just have a better view on life they're stronger they're healthier they have a better relationship with their family and it's because they did a proper debrief it's because they dug in and did the work to heal from the event and you know i can't emphasize enough how much we need to be doing that
0: i i love the concept of post-traumatic stress growth i talk about it frequently both on this program and in my private conversations with, with you know, officers who have faced trauma. And um, it is not a topic that it, we're, we're starting to hear the, the phrase a whole lot more often now than we ever did before, which is something I'm very thankful for, because it is very legitimate. Um, there is, a, uh, there is a, a, a couple of programs out there that are very effective in dealing with the mental health of law enforcement officers. Um, that that actually um, utilize the concept of post-traumatic stress growth as a tool in healing. And I, I personally, I have experienced it, and so that's why I'm I'm so passionate about this particular topic. And I'm glad that um, that that you recognize it too from all of your interactions. So let, let me ask you this. Um, we have seen the, the actual dehumanizing, demoralization of our law enforcement community literally for years now. The false narratives that have been, uh, that have been so uh, incredibly spread by, uh, a, by a, a media that seems to be complicit with, um, with a political ideology that seems bent on destroying the law enforcement fabric that we know. And, and so when we, when we see these false narratives come out, we see uh, people being, uh, police officers being uh, literally p- brought to trial, not because they committed a, an act, but because that act was considered to be some type of, of political time bomb. Um, and we see literally false prosecutions. How do you think, from your perspective and interactions with the law enforcement community that you've seen, how is that affecting the mental health of the wider community?
1: So, that's a lot to chew on. There's- um,
0: You don't think I'm gonna give you a simple question, do you?
1: you No, I didn't, I
0: didn't.
1: (laughs) Uh, But I I actually love this question. We, it's interesting, we're screwing this up in two ways one law enforcement has not taken an active enough role in defending itself um, you know you, you've seen agencies that have kind of gone towards radical transparency where an event happens and they go here's everything that happened and I, I think because law enforcement has has viewed the media as a rattlesnake for so many years they've been afraid to handle it and unfortunately rather than trying to avoid handling it what they needed to be doing was trying to create anti-venom with it and and what I mean by that is, rather than avoiding talking to the media, talk to the media in a very structured way. You know, you look at the Breonna Taylor case. I interviewed John Mattingly, who was the, the sergeant that led that operation, and was a guy that was shot in the femoral artery. Um,
0: John is a, you, you is look a per, John is a personal friend and has actually been a speaker at the National Law Enforcement Survival Summit. Um, so he is he is someone who. Um, literally has faced the dragon.
1: 100%. And 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 what's interesting about that case, so so I was first introduced to him and I didn't really know the case. I knew the public, you know, the, the media coverage of the case. When I dug into the case, what blew my mind was how false the narratives were right from the get and how little the department did to oppose the false narratives. I mean, you had Kamala Harris going on saying that, you know, going on national television, LeBron James, Alicia Keys, you know, running around saying that you know, she, they weren't at the right house and they shot her in her bed. And, you know, and and as I started to dig into it and read everything, because I, you know, I'm willing to take on a controversial topic, like that doesn't scare me, but I'm gonna understand it, right, I, I'm, I am a lawyer, my brain is gonna work like a lawyer. I dug into everything, I read everything, you know, and 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 you look at the way that the officers had been portrayed, which was they were racist, they were sexist, you know, whatever. Um, they, were, they were, you know, all around great evil. And then you talk to John Mattingly, and you realize John is every narc sergeant I've ever known. He's a really normal dude, right, who has a racially integrated family, just as a, you know, a side note. Um, And you start to realize like, this is this is one of those times that the narrative was wrong. It caught on and it ran with it. But agencies have got to do a better job of attacking the false narratives of responding with facts. And so one of the things that I love, uh, I recently saw an interview, I forget that it's a deputy chief in Louisville, um, Paul, I can't remember Paul's last name, but the deputy chief in Louisville giving a briefing on a shooting. And it was a righteous shooting. And he went through every single aspect of the shooting. Here's the video, here's why we made the decisions we made. This is what happened. And there were no questions, right? The media was like, oh, okay. When, when you see what happens, when people hear that, that John Mattingly was shot when the when they breached the door at Brianna Taylor's house, they go, oh, really? I didn't know that. And, and all of a sudden, you're like, well, yeah, of course they shot back. Um, it, it is fascinating to me. I, I'll give you another one. I interviewed a kid named Jordan McWilliams. So Jordan is an RCMP integrated emergency response team member in the lower Mainland, the western coast of British Columbia. Uh, Jordan's a, a corporal. Jordan is... I mean, if you, if you saw Jordan, you would think he probably was like, a, I don't know, a church representative or a vacuum cleaner salesman, just the nicest <laughs> looking, you know, just a nice soft book. And even for Canadians, Jordan's a nice guy. <laughs> but Jordan, Jordan was a relatively new guy on the, on the emergency response team. And they had a guy take a, his girlfriend hostage with a, a gun, fires a couple of shots at her, hits her several times, happens in a casino parking lot. Gets a lot of media attention. Um, the newly created, so, so the guy, ultimately the girl gets away because Jordan's team snatches her away. He stops. The suspect is is kind of pacing around in a parking lot with the gun. And he kind of, you know, he keeps threatening to kill himself. And at one point he gets far enough away from the, from the victim that the team snatches her, just runs up and grabs her. This is like an open field scenario, parking lot. So now he's there by himself and he's going to kill himself. Well, at some point he points the gun at the team and Jordan shoots him and kills him. He fires one round. The newly created uh, was the independent investigations office created with a guy who had come out of LA, files murder charges on Jordan. What? unusual First time since 1974 that a police officer had been charged with murder in Canada. This goes on for two years. Ultimately he's acquitted. Uh, I I would encourage you to listen to the interview. It is, you wanna talk about post-traumatic growth, Jordan lectures to the, the uh, office that charged him. Once a year, he goes in and meets with their staff and tells them, this is what you guys did to me. And this is the mistakes that you made. So that's how far Jordan got with this. But I tell you the story, because when, when you hear Jordan tell the story, being charged was obviously very traumatic. The real trauma he felt was the abandonment of his agency. Yes. Right. So he, Jordan was working at an agency called Delta. His dad had been a cop there for most of his career, like his entire career, retired from there. Jordan had known these people since he was a child. He gets charged with murder and they all abandon him, wash their hands and walk away. Right. Which just destroys him. And when you hear him talk about it, and when you hear guys talk about the trauma of their events, it's not the event. A lot of times it's what happened afterwards. It was the way the agency handled it. It was the way they were treated by their coworkers. It was the fact that nobody called them. Nobody reached out to them. Everybody thought they were toxic. Um, you know, same thing with John, when you talk to John, like it's, it's, it's the fact that guys that you think are your brothers and, and, and leaders that you think care about you just turn and walk away from you. Um, and I think so. So I think if we're going to improve things in law enforcement, there's two places we need to make significant changes. One is how we oppose media narratives, but more importantly, we need to improve the way agencies deal with their own officers. Whether the officer's charged with a crime or the officer is 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 injured in the line of duty, we've got to get better at handling those events and handling the officer and his family, um, it, 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 because the real trauma is being inflicted after the event. Uh, because it's a trauma that they didn't expect. And so to me, that is probably the biggest area for improvement. Um, another guy interviewed Jordan uh, Robinson, uh, San Bernardino County, he, or San Bernardino PD. Uh, Jordan was shot seven times trying to take down a, an attempted murder suspect. The day before, the guy tries to kill a deputy sheriff. And so Jordan's team takes him down. Jordan gets hit seven times. Chris Shipley gets hit once. The way the agency handled the two of them was appalling. Hmm. It was possibly the worst I've ever seen it done. Really? And when you talk to the officers, that's what they talk about. They don't talk about being shot.
0: Right, right.
1: (laughs) They talk about, oh yeah, the chief never came and saw me. My family found out because somebody called him and said, oh my God, is he gonna die? Not because somebody showed up at the door, right? It's just, I I really think, I think we need to, to teach our administrators across the country how to deal with a critical event and then and then give them a playbook to responding to an officer involved shooting to an officer that's being charged with a crime and and come up with best practices because i'll tell you man as somebody who's dealing with guys in trauma all the time um we screw it up more than we get it right
0: well you and i are going to talk offline about that we've come to the end of our time right now unfortunately we could we could talk for hours clearly um, how can people find you?
1: So, uh, the debrief.com or the debrief.live is probably the easiest thing. Uh, the show is the debrief with John Becker. You can find it on YouTube, uh, any, you know, Apple, Spotify, you know, wherever you get your podcasts, uh, it's available there. And then, um, the debrief.live and, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, if people are aware of events or have good stories, I'm, I'm always happy to talk to people.
0: Well, I really appreciate you taking the time. If you would, just wait in the wings for me till I uh, um, end the show. And I'd like to have a little offline discussion with you. Thank you so of much, so. John, for appearing on our show, the Wounded Blue Hour. And for, for those of you who, who uh, enjoy this show, I ask you to go to the See who we are, see what we do. We are the National Assistance and Support Organization for Injured and Disabled Law Enforcement Officers. And we recognize injuries as either being physical, psychological, and emotional. And believe me, if you are one of those officers, you don't have to walk this journey by yourself. My entire team is made up of men and women who have been shot, stabbed, beaten, run over, screwed up and screwed over. Many have faced post-traumatic stress and come out on the other side. You can too. Reach out to thewoundedblue.org and... Get to understand that there are people that do care. If you support law enforcement, I ask you to go to the website, thewoundedblue.org. Hit that donate button. Give what you can, even if it's only 10 bucks a month. I assure you that the men and women of the law enforcement community will appreciate it. I'm Randy Sutton. Thanks for joining me again here at America Out Loud. I'll see you next week.